If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Lisa Treviso-Jones, our resident expert on all things burn and the SLP. She'll probably hate that I called her an expert, but compared to me, she's an expert. Like she knows all the things. Um, This is such a very niche area in our field. So I'm really, really pleased that Lisa agreed to return to the podcast and continue our talk on providing care in a burn unit um, and what the SLP role is in that. So our topic today centers on inhalation injury and the care of hypertrophic scarring. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host. And without further ado, let's get into our topic. Welcome back to the podcast, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Leanne. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I am so thrilled to have you back on the podcast to learn more about how SLPs manage um, patients with burn injuries and the role that we can play on the burn unit. Like This is really exciting. Oh, I'm so happy to be back. Thank you so much for allowing me to do part two. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because in typical SLP fashion, we bit off more than we can chew. And we're like, we'll have plenty of time. We'll cover all this stuff. And then, of course, we get talking. So. It's true. And once I get talking, it's, it's, it's tough to rein it in. So I'm excited I'm back. Yes, there's just so much good information. And I'm so glad that you're here to share it. Okay, if this is someone's first time listening to you, I want them to know a little bit about you. So Lisa, where are you? What do you do? Tell me all the things. Sure. I am a speech pathologist at the University of Colorado Hospital. I've been there for over 15 years. Um, I specialize in the rehab units, the neonatal ICU, the burn unit, um, but really I go all over the hospital. Our hospital is like a 700-bed hospital, so we have about seven speech pathologists um, every given day. And so we kind of all float everywhere. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love the hospital setting. I love acute care. So fun. It is. It is. Um, Okay. So um, we're going to start off our talk today by digging into inhalation injuries and the connection with dysphagia. Yes, this was something I didn't get a chance to get into in our last podcast, so I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so what is inhalation? Um, Inhalation injuries, as you can imagine, they result in the ingestion of smoke or some type of chemicals. Um, This is usually present in about 20 to 50% of our patients that are admitted to the burn center. Um, and present in about 60 to 70% of patients who typically end up dying in our burn centers as well, just because it ends up causing 
severe long-term complications, including dysphagia, dysphonia, and long-standing pulmonary dysfunction, including increasing your chances for developing acute respiratory distress syndrome, so ARDS. And patients are eight times more likely to have dysphagia following an inhalation injury versus a burn injury without. I hate to interrupt already. I'm already interrupting. I can't believe it. Okay. Um, so with the inhalation injury, they're inhaling the smoke, any of the chemicals maybe that are involved in the fire that have been aerosolized. I don't think I said that word right, but I'm moving forward. <laughs> um, so it's causing damage to their trachea, to their lungs, and that's resulting in this cascade effect where now they're blood can't get that transition of oxygen, I'm thinking, like it's just, it just keeps going on from there. Is that? Yeah, exactly. So it basically, it's almost like soot ends up in your lungs type of thing. So it can really cause a slew of um, problems. Your lungs can't really work the way that they normally would. So if we're seeing eight times more likely a patient is eight times more likely to experience dysphagia with inhalation injuries versus just burn injuries to the head and neck region. Is that because it's damaged that breathe swallow coordination that that's become impaired that we're seeing more of the dysphagia? Yeah. So yes, absolutely. And so typically what ends up happening is with the exposure to all those chemicals, um, you're going to, or just smoke, it's going to really damage the mucosa in your pharynx. It's almost as if, if you think about the burn injury that you have on the outside, you think of the mucosa also going through some of that. And so you're going to have that swelling. You're going to have um, just decreased movement of the pharynx. I actually, there's a really fantastic study that came out this year in February from Australia that found that mucosa of the tongue blade, hard and soft palate, appear to be resistant to the development of scar tissue and contractures following thermal inhalation or ingestion burn injury. But the floor of the mouth, the pharyngeal, and especially especially the laryngeal mucosa are, are not. And so what ends up happening is these anatomical sites are associated with elevated risk for development of scar tissue and contractures with subsequent impact of the upper motor and sensory function. So this is reduction in our airway protection during swallowing and reduction in our airway responsiveness should aspiration occur. Oh, so okay. Kind of crazy how it really, really impacts just our sensation. And from like an anecdotal standpoint, that's typically what we end up seeing too. I didn't realize that it would cause so much structural damage. Yeah, that like that you would have scarring from an inhalation. I mean, I guess that's why they call it an injury. You know? <laughs> oh, all right. It's like the pieces are coming together in my brain now. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. So when somebody comes in um, with an inhalation injury, some of the things that we're looking for are were they burned in like a closed space? because that's going to put them at higher risk, obviously, of inhaling these things. They're also looking for facial, facial or intraoral burns, singed nasal hairs, soot in the mouth, 
nostrils, larynx. Um, typically, somebody will be really hoarse or stridorous. They'll have respiratory distress and um, you know, just having that harder time breathing. There's different types of inhalation injuries. So you can have the carbon monoxide poisoning. And then they also characterize inhalation above the glottis and inhalation below the glottis. And so with carbon monoxide poisoning, obviously it's like a colorless, odorless gas. Um, it binds to hemoglobin 200 times more than oxygen. Um, and it's going to be an immediate threat to life and survivors with severe inhalation injury. Just is the toxicity. Um, inhalation above injury above the glottis. Um, this is the most kind most common type of inhalation injury that we're going to, that we typically work with. And it results in the heat dissipation into the tissues. Um, commonly leads to obstruction. Um, like I said beforehand, it's going to result in edema in the pharynx and the larynx. And your symptoms are going to include like a brassy cough, strider, hoarseness. And then obviously you're going to um, have some facial burns possibly along with that. Um, inhalation below the glottis is more injury to the lungs, like we were talking about, the lung tissues. Um, so chemical pneumonitis caused by toxic products, um, ammonia, chlorine, hydrogen chloride, things like that. Um, these like volatile substances that are inhaled are also going to cause that damage to the lungs. And typically, the symptoms are a little bit more unpredictable. I will say, though, for the most part, um, the inhalation above the glottis is typically what we're dealing with from people coming in from burns and closed spaces. Um, so when somebody comes in to the hospital with an inhalation or a suspected inhalation injury, one of our standard protocols is that within 24 hours of them arriving at the hospital, the physicians are going to perform a bronchoscopy. It's called a bronchoscopy. This is a medical test that um, lets doctors look into the lungs and the airway. The procedure uses a, you know, a tiny little tube with a small camera and a light at the end of it, similar to what we would do for feast, except we don't have a fancy light. But they insert it in through the nose or through the mouth and then down through the throat and into the lungs. And what they're looking for is they're looking for soot. That's all through the pharynx and possibly beneath the glottis. Airway edema, erythema, which is that superficial reddening of the skin or irritation causing dilation of the capillaries, and then ulceration. And so they, after, or when they're doing the bronchoscopy, they are measuring the level of inhalation injury on a scale from zero to four. And so the zero to one um, is gonna mean that there's no visible injury. They don't really see anything. One, you might see like a little bit, but nothing too concerning. Typically these patients are on a ventilator on an average of like about eight days, maybe eight and a half days. And survival rate is about 84% when you have a grade zero to one. Grades two, three, and four, they're going to be classifying more massive injury, maybe some necrosis, mucosal sloughing. So this is where kind of that mucosa starts to slough, similar to where you'd see somebody after a burn injury kind of sloughing off their skin 
So for these patients, the vent days on average are about close to 13 days and the survival rate is about 50%. So it definitely do, or increases their mortality rate with the higher grade of inhalation. And I think in the first podcast in Burn 101, I discussed how um, we take the TBSA, which is turn, um, total burn surface area, and the age to kind of figure out their mortality or survivability. And a level of inhalation injury is a greater predictor of mortality than the TBSA and age combined, which is pretty fascinating. I think it definitely, um, it, it's, it's that thing on the, you know, once you injure internally, it's really hard to reverse the effects of that, if that makes sense. Yes, no, it absolutely does. Um, Lisa, if they're doing the bronchoscopy and they've noticed or they're observing some of that sloughing, um, so it's like tissue that is not attached to the body anymore. Right. Um, what does it do then? Does your body absorb it? Are the doctors able to remove it? Do they wish to? Like, are they just like, do they just note it? Like, observe sloughing. I think that they just note it. As far as I know, I'm not, I'm not sure that they can grab it all off. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine that they can. So I, as far as I know, they just note it and, um, hope that I would imagine that they just hope that it reabsorbs into the body. Cause typically by the time that we go in to see the patients and we're doing fees or anything like that, you won't notice that sloughing. So there must be that time period where it heals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's our bodies are incredible. Like they really are. It's wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So when you think of all this damage that can happen internally, um, to the pharynx and the laryngeal mucosa, it's no surprise these people end up having dysphagia, right? So they are typically intubated a lot longer. Um, they're more likely to be more critical and, typically end up with a tracheostomy tube just because of that occlusion or obstruction in the airway. Um, and you'll, it's been noted in different research articles, how the changes to anatomy are typically the, um, posterior cricoid thickening can happen. And then area, area epiglottic fold shortening, which is kind of interesting. So from anecdotally, what we see is just a lot of swollen tissue. <laughs> we see that area epiglottic folds that are typically just really swollen, really, um, really hard to visualize the vocal cords when you go into do feeds because everything just looks very red, very swollen. Interesting. So, no, no surprise that these patients with inhalation injuries have also been shown to be six times more likely um, to have dysphagia than, again, those that um, just have burnt injuries. There was one study that showed that. So kind of crazy. It is. It's so interesting. So I'm, I'm ready to, like, already jump into, like, treatment. I'm like, okay, so you observe all this, this swelling and this edema and everything. I'm like, wow. What do you do? Do you lean more towards thinner liquids? Like, can they manage that? Or because I'm thinking like with thicker liquids, like it might promote like too much residue, which would be too risky for aspiration after the swallow. 
And other studies have shown us that aspiration of thickened liquids can lead to worse outcomes for patients. And these patients are already in such an incredibly fragile state. I'm just so curious. So compromised. <laughs> I, I know. I want to get us out I of know. So one thing um, to note with this population is the use of a Dobhoff tube or an NG tube for these patients. So when we start to go to the point where this patient is going to start to be able to eat something, um, they're most likely going to need a tube of some sort for a long haul. One of the things with these patients is that they have someone with a large burn are extremely, they have extremely high metabolic demands that are required to facilitate that wound healing. So even despite when we get to the point where we can start someone on the diet, they could be eating three meals a day and they're still going to have to have that supplemental nutrition. Oh, wow. So we work pretty closely with our dietitians. Yeah. The caloric intake, I forget what it is, but it is something crazy, like 3000 or 4000 calories a day they need. And so they're eating all of this food and then requiring that supplemental nutrition on top of that. We have patients who will come to our, even our rehab unit, they've been there for a long time and they still have that nasogastric or Dobhoff tube in feeding them. Holy cow. Yeah. That's like, like shaking my core because I'm like, you know, in my head, I categorize things to try to learn things and remember them. And so I think of Dobhoff tubes or NG tubes as being short term, like a few weeks. But you're saying with these patients, because of their need for an incredible amount of calories to support the healing process, um, they're going to wear it for up to like, what do you see people with an NG tube? Oh, like months and months. I mean, we can have, yeah, we can have people in our hospital. And I will tell you, if they're a larger burn, they're at really high risk for even placement of a peg tube. So a lot of times they'll just keep the nasal gastric or the Dobhoff tube in place because they might not have the skin or it's just too big of a infection risk to go in and do a peg tube. So they just keep the NG tube and really hope we can get them swallowing by the time. Because I mean, if they're having a hard time swallowing, that's also a complication, right? You don't want someone to have an NG tube Dobhoff tube forever to manage because that's really hard to do once you go home. So yeah, a lot of like, pressure to get these guys eating. Absolutely. So now you mentioned they may be eating and getting the supplemental nutrition through the NG tube, but then they could also be getting all of their nutrition through the NG tube. Right. And the literature like also tells us like the principles of neuroplasticity, like that we need to be working on these skills. It's like a use it or lose it type of a principle. Yeah. So what kind, like, are you doing some sort of like swallowing exercise with them when maybe they're not appropriate to like have a full diet? Like, do you ease them? Like what's, what's your kind of protocol to start with, with patients? Well, so typically, um, we initiate, so on average, research has shown that we typically initiate oral, oral feedings with this population around 24 days of them being in the hospital. So it's definitely going to take a little while. You have to think about, too, these patients are intubated for a lot longer, um, probably end up with a trach, have a lot of swelling, are pretty critically ill. So, um, you know, the average is 24 days. 
the resolution, research literature has also shown that the resolution of dysphagia is about 42 days. So um, it definitely, these, these patients definitely need quite a bit of intervention from us. We, our protocol, and it's so interesting because I don't know what the heck we did beforehand, <laughs> but now we use fees in our hospital as of the last, you know, like six years. And this population has been unbelievably useful to have fees in our hospital because these patients were so hard to transfer down to a radiology suite beforehand, especially our larger burns. They're a really hard transfer, transferring them into a, um, the radiology chair. It, it was just, it was really complicated. You're taking a nurse off of the ICU to come down with us. It was just a lot of moving parts. And so now I feel like with fees, we are able to, um, look at how the structures are, look at how their sensation is. And it's interesting that that 24 days that I just quoted from um, a study that I saw, I, they were using these in their, um, in their hospital. And I'm like, I really wonder, it would be so interesting to take the information from before we used fees in our hospital and how long it actually took us to get these people on the diet. Cause we were so nervous. I mean, They've been through so much. If they have an inhalation injury or enlarged burns, we would be pretty nervous that this person is going to silently aspirate and they really can't afford to do that. And so I don't have that data, but it would have been so interesting to, to know kind of how long it took us to get these people swallowing. Well, I imagine there are probably still facilities around the country that haven't brought in a fees and have a burn unit. And they have SOPs working on those units who maybe don't have access to fees yet. Like they could, they could try that. <laughs> I know, right. They could kind of see how long it takes for them to get people eating. But I, as far as, I mean, pretty much with any of these patients, if they have an inhalation injury, I'm going to do a fees on them because we just automatically know from the get-go that their sensation is going to be significantly reduced. And then with the fees, I like to do a lot of biofeedback of just showing them, okay, this is what's going on. How are we going to try to protect your airway? So a lot of times from a treatment standpoint, I'll try to use a superglottic swallow technique just because if, they're, if we can make sure and shut off their airway when they're swallowing, it'll just make them be able to protect their airway a little bit better. Um, Sometimes we, I mean, we'll try different liquids. You're right. Like with a lot of swollen tissues that thicker, like honey thick, is just going to coat everything, putting them at risk of kind of aspirating things after the swallow. So it's really a matter of kind of seeing for the patient just how swollen they are, what their sensation looks like, and figuring out where we can go from there. And like you said, you, I also, with these patients, even if they are aspirating, I am and my other speech pathologists that I work with, we are really a big proponent of starting them on something. So whether that be like water and ice chips, just like a water protocol with the, um, you know, intention that they're going to be doing really good oral care. The nurses are going to be doing really good oral care to get them at least swallowing something, even though we know that they'll probably aspirate on it. We just want them swallowing something. 
and we want them swallowing something as quickly as they can tolerate it. So, um, can I ask another question? Yeah. So earlier you mentioned like you want to get in there and do fees like as soon as possible to know what's going on and what's the best course of action. So when you receive orders for a patient, um, I imagine you're not like walking in with your fees unit, like, cause that, you know, we always go in and we do our clinical swallow evaluation or our bedside assessment. And so that first session is probably you kind of getting the lay of the land and seeing if the patient is appropriate for fees or for starting something like that is like, I'm, that's me guessing. So what, what do you typically do? Like when you receive orders and you know, like your goal is to get this person eating as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I will say a lot of times we're already following the patient. So we get orders pretty early on when they're face or neck burn, um, when they're already, when they're currently intubated. So a lot of times we're already following them and looking to see how their injury, their facial injury or their, um, mouth injury and things like that are impacting their, like their chances of contracture and things like that. So then I feel like it's more us being like, Hey, you know what? I think this patient would be really appropriate for us to start doing some swallowing stuff. So I feel like it's a little bit easier for us to, we already know the patient. We know kind of their trajectory. We've seen them go from, um, being intubated to getting trached and we've been working with them through that time. So typically when they're trached, as soon as they're trached, I'm like, okay, how quickly can we get them on trach collar and um, get them with a passing ear valve? And if they're sounding pretty good, I'm also, of course, assessing their voice to see how their voice sounds. If they're really hoarse, really stridorous, I'm like, this, this might not look great on a fees. But um, usually that's the point where we're going to be like, okay, maybe it's time for this person to get a fees, see how they're doing. Okay, good. All right. Thanks. And so speaking of some of that, do you have any questions about more about dysphagia and what we do? Otherwise I was going to switch gears to some of our scar management and what we do for our scars. Um, I think I'm good. I'm sure I'll think of like 26 other questions, like an hour from now when I'm like playing this back in my head. Um, but like, yeah, you've provided a really good overview of kind of those first stages and what you're trialing. Like when you're doing your first fees, you're going to see, um, like, is there something that we can start this patient on to get them swallowing? And what kind of strategy would work best to maintain airway protection and reduce the risk of aspiration so that it's feasible for this patient to get back to swallowing? So pretty clear. Okay, I'm sure a bunch of people listening being like, no, I have like six questions. <laughs> I, know. I know, but it really, I mean, as far as treatment, like once, like what we look at or what I look at is, okay, we know this patient has an inhalation injury. We know that they're at higher risk for silent aspiration, but then really after that, it's pretty much like treating any other patient with dysphagia. Right. Um, and they, they're obviously excited to eat like everybody else is in the hospital. And, um, they are eager to work with us and figure out a way to do that. Sometimes we will have, um, a cognitive component that 
you know, gets intertwined with that as well, just depending on how they obtained their injuries. Sometimes with an explosion, people can have brain injuries on top of that if they were thrown back. Um, or sometimes delirium, sometimes the polypharmacy, the, just a lot of pain medication and stuff like that can really impact people from being able to do some of the strategies and stuff. So we'll coordinate with the medical team too, of like, hey, how can we get them to be a little bit more awake or, um, you know, things like that to make sure that we can really get at them being able to use some strategies. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go into treatment options for addressing, is it hypertrophic scarring? Yes. Yes. So obviously, um, like I said, we're going to be working with these patients pretty early on. I mean, they come into the hospital, our PTs and OTC that they're a face and neck burn, and we're going to get consulted even if they're still intubated. This is a good um, opportunity to kind of see how extensive their injury is and kind of how we can start planning for um, our treatment. Obviously, the scars severely, severely impacts a person's emotional well-being, right? And so we are going to be using our multidisciplinary team to really address. Obviously, we kind of look at the face, the mouth, the neck. But then we're also going to be having the PTs and OTs who are also looking at different areas of their body and preventing contractures as much as we possibly can. So there's two different types of scars, three different types of scars, really. But um, the hypertrophic scar is typically what we're going to end up seeing and working with in our um, burn unit. And hypertrophic scarring means that the margins of the scar remain within the wound site. So there's an excessive overgrowth of dense collagen tissue deposits that cause like a little bit of a raised um, scar. They're not very painful after healing um, and they typically develop. So if your burn ends up healing within 14 days, you're significantly less likely to develop this type of scarring. But like I talked about in the first podcast, so the superficial partial thickness burn, which is like a second degree burn, um, will take about seven to 14 days to heal. And then a deep partial thickness burn will take about 21 to 35 days to heal. So that gives you just a little perspective of kind of who's more at risk for developing this type of um, scar. If a wound takes over 21 days to heal, your chances increase to like 78% of developing this type of scarring. Um, the other types of scars are a keloid scar where the margins go outside of the wound bed and can be very painful. And these can grow within years after injury and spontaneously without any known cause. And they're kind of those scars that are like really raised up and kind of um, start going everywhere. And then there's also the atrophic scars, which are like when people get, you know, back in the day, I feel like when you get chicken pox or something and you get like that little indentation. Yes, I've yeah. got one. I've got yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Atrophic scar. That's what that is. And so that's just like where you're missing a little bit of the tissue and it doesn't come back. Wild. Yeah. So treatment for the hypertrophic scars, one of the big ones, um, one of the biggest ones is pressure therapy. 
So pressure therapy is exactly as it sounds. You place pressure to the hypertrophic scar to reduce the appearance of the scar. And the reason we use pressure is because it's been shown to promote that hypertrophic scar maturation, which like I mentioned before in the previous podcast, maturation of these scars typically takes 12 to 24 months. So we tell people that you have to, after their injury and they're getting close to leaving the rehab unit or getting close to leaving the hospital, that they need to constantly stretch because these scars are not mature yet. But by applying pressure, we're helping to inhibit the um, keratinocytes proliferation. So it's basically trying to prevent anything from basically trying to kill the cells from proliferating, if that makes sense. So you're going to be suppressing the uh, microfibroblast population by apoptosis, which is cellular death. So you're trying to apply that pressure so that you're killing those cells and actually increasing the maturation of that scar, which is really, you know, it's kind of crazy. It seems kind of counterintuitive. Like, why would you apply pressure to healing skin? Um, but you just explained why, like it's, um, killing those cells that want to, um, die off. Yeah. They, they want to, yeah, they want to proliferate. So they want to actually increase and you're trying to actually prevent that from happening because as they increase, your scar will increase as well. And that scar becomes, uh, something like fibrotic tissue. So it reduces the movement. Absolutely. And that's what we're always working against. And that's why we tell them to stretch. And that's why we're doing the pressure treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. And so literature has shown like how much pressure, how often do we use this pressure? And so literature has shown that like 24 to 28 millimeters of mercury has been found to be the optimal amount of pressure. That's Awesome. I do not know how to use that in clinical care. And so for us, our clinical guide is applying enough pressure that you get that hypertrophic scar to blanch. And what it means to blanch is that you're pushing, you're applying pressure to an area um, to until or to that scar until it turns white. And then as soon as your finger releases, you can slowly see that blood kind of rush back to that area and then you apply pressure again. So in our hospital, we, um, the PTs and OTs years ago developed like a protocol of like how much, how often are we using the pressure and things. And so we came up with this protocol of you do that manual overpressure. So you apply that pressure to the scar for two minutes at a time to one area. So if you have an area, let's say on the side of your mouth, you're kind of applying that pressure. You're holding it there for two minutes to try to get that optimal, um, you know, okay. apoptosis. So you're pressing and holding mm-hmm. two minutes past, you release and the blood flows back in. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was thinking of something more like a, a movement massage, maybe in the same area for two minutes, but it's constant pressure. Exactly. The constant pressure has been shown to be a little bit more effective than massage. I think we, we still do use massage in some areas, but it, if you have an area that is really thick, 
and is really needs to be broken down, you apply that like constant pressure to that area. Okay. To get it to get it to prevent those cells from proliferating, spreading. Now, Lisa, when someone has pretty extensive facial burns and neck burns, like are you just placing like your entire hand across their cheek or jaw and just pushing and pressing for two minutes and then releasing and moving to another location and pressing two minutes and you're like going on a conversation with them or just standing there? Like, push like I'm trying to imagine what that's like as two people, you know, engaged in this type of therapy. So typically what I think about is function. So the areas that are really impacting somebody's function, their ability to open their mouth, their ability to extend their neck back. I try to find an area that is really prohibiting that and try to target that. And then as far as the other scars that they have, I, we look at splints and kind of providing that long-term like as soon as we're done with our therapy, we put their face split back on, we put their neck split back on to provide a little bit more overall like emphasis on um, applying that pressure to their face. So if they're wearing a neck or a face um, splint, then they're pushing against the splint to apply pressure on their own? Well, no, our hope is that we get that splint tight enough in the areas that we want to reduce the appearance of the scars. Does that make sense? So we use strapping with splints to kind of really make sure things are nice and tight so that they're getting that pressure. Does that make sense? I think so, because I wasn't really sure what the splint looked like. So it's going to like, I'm thinking like a, like a mask that's been, you know, covering most of their face or most of their neck, but it might be something smaller it's targeting a very specific place and location. Yeah, it absolutely can. We we kind of make splints um, all over the gamut. So if you let's say um, we have a really tight spot on the sides of their mouth, like on their lateral lateral commissures, we're going to make a splint that basically goes into their mouth and then on the outside of the mouth, and that kind of is hoping to provide a stretch. But if they have scarring along there too. We're hoping to kind of uh, reduce some of the scarring. That one is actually more for a stretch. Let me let me take a different example: the face mask. So, if you are going to take a face mask, depending on where the area of the burn is, if it's all over their face, you're going to get a full face mask, and you're going to make sure that it is um, really strapped pretty tight. And on the areas that have extensive scarring, we're almost going to modify that face mask to make sure it's specifically targeting some of those bigger scars that are developing. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm kind of interpreting that in my head to be like, you're shaping the inside of that face mask to be where you want their skin to rest as it's healing. Almost like you're shaping the skin where you want it to live. Yeah. Yeah. Or just trying to like smooth out the appearance of those scars from like a cosmetic standpoint. And we have another trick up our sleeve that I'll, I'll talk about here too. That is super beneficial with those face masks and neck masks and stuff like that. So we know that the pressure is um, super beneficial. And like I said, we're unable to provide that constant stretching throughout the day. So we're going to use the face masks um, and we encourage them 
like a face mask or a neck sponge or something like that. We encourage them to be in it as much as they possibly can tolerate throughout the day. You know, they're going to have to take it off if they're eating or stuff like that, but we really wanting them wearing it around the clock. Um, you've probably seen like garments and things like that, that people can wear after a burn injury. In our hospital, we have someone, um, one of our PTs will typically order garments for patients like on their arms or legs or sometimes a face garment. Um, but it takes so long to receive them. So a lot of times they'll be getting them right before discharge or um, they'll get them at their follow-up appointment. So PT, OT, speech, we kind of really work together to make sure that we can get them something in the meantime. So one of the things that has been found super beneficial in burn rehabilitation is silicone. And a lot of times we try to use fabricate our splints and things that have silicone lined things. So um, we often use like a Cylon elastomer sheeting that um, is like a silicone elastomer sheeting that really provides the properties to smooth out the appearance of scars. It enhances scar flexibility, improves cosmetic appearances. It can reduce itching, redness, and inflammation. And it's, silicone has been shown that it actually doesn't require too much pressure to be effective, but instead just early application of silicone on the face can produce really effective outcomes. And so as far as like, why does silicone work? They're not really quite sure. <laughs> they have like theories of like maybe hydration or oxygen tension, possible temperature, but studies have shown that patients with Cylon face masks, which is like the silicone elastomer sheeting that um, I talked about, showed that blood flow was significantly decreased with someone wearing a Cylon mask versus someone who is wearing a mask with no Cylon. Um, and it's been shown, these silicone masks have also been shown to re reduce blood flow over time, even when the mask is not in use. Whereas a non-silicone mask, um, the blood flow increases to the prior levels after about five minutes of removal of the mask. So, you know, another theory, it's just increasing, causing this like tissue hypoxia and reducing that cell proliferation, like we had talked about beforehand. And the silicone properties is allowing this to happen. So, so we do not want elevated blood flow in the scar tissue, because if it gets that, then that bad cell that we don't want it to grow, like that we're trying, we're doing the, the pressure, pressure treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we are looking to achieve reduced blood flow for scar maturation. Exactly. Okay. So we're trying to, we're, we are trying to, with the pressure therapy, with the silicone therapy, we are trying to reduce that cell proliferation and increase that time of maturation. Does that make sense where the scar is fully matured and they don't have to worry about doing all their exercises again? So with that decreased blood flow, you're getting closer and closer to that, that maturation being quicker than it otherwise would be. 
I would not have thought that. I would have thought that you wanted blood flow to spur on the healing process. But in this case, you don't. Yeah. So kind of crazy. And so we try to use these the silicone elastomer sheeting um, for our mouth splints, our face masks, our neck masks when able, um, just because it is a obviously a really fantastic component to helping with the, um, reducing that cell proliferation. But it's not always the case. We can't always use it because unfortunately those sheets are really expensive. <laughs> so um, we have to be really, really careful. It's kind of like, uh, you know, gold. We, we have to make sure that when we're cutting a sheet, we get these like 10 sheets that come in a package that we cut them to the exact size we need because we don't want to waste any last bit of it because they are pretty expensive and, um, you know, our hospital doesn't want us wasting it. So, and the amazing thing about these silicone um, sheets is that they can be reheated and reshaped. So if you make a splint for someone, you make a neck splint, you know, um, to try to get them in that extended position so that it's really getting them a stretch pressure and the silicone properties, you get them in that position, but then you come back the next day and they're like, this is unbelievably uncomfortable. It's not going to help anything if they don't want to wear it. (laughs) So the great thing about this is you can put it back in the pan and reshape it the way you want to reshape it. So it's not cutting into the chin or, you know, it's not kind of cutting into their collarbones or something like that. You can flare it out and you can always like just wash it with soap and water and like, you know, dry it after they've worn it or for a long time. So it's a really cool product. Um, I'm not a spokesperson for them by any means, but um, from, you know, a burn therapy standpoint, it's, it's fantastic to have this this product that we can use that is so, um, you know, pliable, easy to use mm-hmm. and, um, has great therapeutic properties. So, and we use all of the, as a speech therapist, I know it sounds crazy, but we use when we're creating these splints, we use all the typical heating components that OTs are very accustomed to using, you know, like the heating pans and, Um, we'll typically take a heating pan into the patient's room with the little piece of, um, the silicone that we cut out. And then we kind of, we heat it up when it heats up, it kind of turns into this like really pliable material. And so then we shape it. And when it's not too warm, we kind of try it on on the patient and see, try to get it to mold to their face. And then we hold it, allow it to cool. And then as it cools, it starts to harden. Well, typically when it's still pretty soft, we'll put like um, a little slit on the back of it. Let's say we were making mouth splints. So something we could put a strap through so that we can strap it. And so then when it hardens, it makes it nice and hard, makes it really easy to put straps on or what have you to really make sure you're getting that nice tight um, cinched up. So you're getting that stretch for the patient in their mouth. And then you're also getting those, those properties. Excellent. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. We'll use like the, you know, Velcro and, um, 
strapping, like the OTs have all kinds of splinting materials. So we would use their strapping and, you know, we, we find whatever we can in the hospital to be crafty and figure out what we need for, um, treating these patients and for, cause sometimes it's hard if they, like if they have burns to the back of their head or something, you're trying to get creative with strapping or, um, if they have a trach, trying to make them a splint that can, like a neck splint that can go around their trach. So there's all kinds of accommodations that we're always doing to try to make sure we're really targeting what needs to be targeted. Awesome. Yeah, we'll use um, kinesio tape too. I, I don't think I talked about this last time, but we'll use sometimes kinesio tape. If you have a patient who, um, like anytime, I guess if you think about when a patient gets burned and their skin starts to tighten, you can have lots of areas that are pulling. That's why it's such a multidisciplinary approach to a patient because I can also work on a patient's um, lips or mouth all day, every day. But if we're not also working on the neck, if we're not also working on the chest, it's not going to do a whole lot. Because if you think about if somebody's burned on their chest, it's going to start pulling down on their neck, which is going to start pulling down on their chin which is going to start pulling down on everywhere else. So we think about these patients where it starts to like pull down on their eyes. It pulls down on their lips. So we're doing everything also with these face masks. Not only are we trying to get like reduce the appearance of cosmetics to try to apply that pressure, but we're also trying to um, relieve that pressure to, to prevent it from getting pulled down from mm -hmm. the other areas that are trying to heal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, taking a real full body view and cross collaboration with the other disciplines so that you're all working to achieve the same goals. And you can't just be so isolated on, oh, well, I'm just the neck and above. Like you have to take everything into account about what will affect another piece of the puzzle. Exactly. And for some of these patients, like I was saying, with their eyes, um, if things start to pull down, you'll get this appearance of um, their eye, eyelids kind of coming down. So sometimes we'll use kinesio tape to just like pull their eye up. So it's almost squishing their eye a little bit so that you kind of attach it from their forehead um, to below their eye to kind of get that lifting so that they don't they're not constantly sitting there all day with their eyes just being kind of pulled down. We'll see that same thing with the bottom lip that it just starts to fold down because it's getting pulled. And so we'll use um, like chin, we'll sometimes make chin splints or what have you to kind of lift that up. Um, and then of course, focus on stretching the rest of the body so that we don't have that, that effect or it doesn't have that effect on, just constantly contracting. And so for therapy, like when we're trying to stretch everything, sometimes I'll have, you know, put pillows behind their scapula or something that they can lean over. If I'm really trying to target their um, cervical burns and then have them close their mouth. Cause you know, as soon as they put their neck back, their mouth is going to drop open because it makes it so much harder for them to keep their mouth closed. So I always tell them, Go ahead and keep your mouth closed, really extend your neck up. Um, and then maybe I'll target 
like an area under their chin that's really um, tight. And that's when I'll do that manual overpressure and hold that. So I'll have the pillows behind their scapula. Sometimes I have them lay off the bed and we'll lay in that stretch while I'm providing that manual overpressure. And then I'll give them a little bit of a break and then we'll do it again. And so for my 30, 45 minute sessions, we're kind of just targeting stretching and allowing that scapula to kind of open up as well. Or the chest to open up so that um, it can allow it to stretch through the chest, stretch through the neck, stretch through the face. You're just trying to also get lots of stretching in there. And you'll see sometimes I try to do um, just take measurements beforehand. We have a, a C-ROM. It's like kind of like a godiometer or whatever that PTs use, but it's like specific for cervical range of motion. It's a little headpiece. So sometimes I'll take measurements just to see where they're at. And then we'll do like a 30, 45 minute session where we're just stretching. And it's amazing, like the range of motion that they can increase just in that time. Wow. It's pretty awesome. And so that's why we're, we're trying to do all of these different things to just constantly increase the range of motion and make sure that, um, you know, they're, they're never in that place of comfort. I think I mentioned this last time. Um, we always want them to be in this place of constant stretching because we know that the place of comfort is the place of contracture. So um, we also encourage them to not have pillows behind their head or anything like that while they're in the burn unit, just because that puts them kind of like if they have cervical burns or neck burns, it just puts them in that um, flexed position. And if they stay in that flexed position, it's going to be impossible to get that extended position later down the road. And so we really we take pillows away. I feel so awful. They're like, I just want to sleep with a pillow. I'm like, I know, but we really want you to be able to move your head around as well. So we're like thinking about function and preventing those like really thick scars from preventing that function. Awesome. Well, goodness, Lisa, this was so informative. This was wonderful. This was an excellent follow-up to Burn 101. I oh, really enjoyed Burn 201. Um, I hope we were able to cover everything or nearly everything that you'd hoped for. I think so. This is oh, great. I worked out way better. Yes, look at this. <laughs> Which is awesome. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leanne. I really could not be more grateful for you asking me to come back and speak again about inhalation and burn treatment. And it's, it's a really cool um, niche. And for anyone who's working in the burn unit, um, it's, it really, it's so wonderful to be a part of that multidisciplinary team working with these patients because they can really be in our unit for a very long time. You get to know them really well. And it's awesome to have wonderful people that you're surrounded with to kind of um, look at the whole picture and look at how we can improve this patient's function. It's pretty awesome. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. 
I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 